Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Exposition Review. We're an independent literary journal. We publish um, one issue every year. This is that issue. You're going to be hearing selections from it tonight. Um, the issue is wonder. Um, so every year we pick a theme and we picked, we try and tie our themes to uh, things that are going on with us. So for example, our first year when we became an independent journal, our issue was theme was nine lives. So it was about transformation. Um, we had Orbit last year, which was all about building a bigger community. This year, Wonder was really about kind of focusing on the awe that we have for the amazing work that we've had to publish, the people that we've met, the support that we've got from this community, and also recognizing um, the broad genres um, that we publish. Because we're a digital, all completely online issue, we publish um, in multi-genre, pretty much every genre, pretty much if you can put it online, we will potentially publish it. Um, and it's that's gonna be reflected in tonight's readings. We actually have um, readers in, represented in every single genre tonight who are going to be reading for you. Um, fiction, nonfiction, poetry, stage, uh, uh, stage, or not stage play, um, screenplay, um, uh, experimental, and we're really lucky tonight that the um, artist of our amazing cover art is also here, and he's going to be saying a few words, so we're very excited about that. Um, let me see, sorry, my notes, guys. Um, so... We'll be, um, we'll be calling them up. We're also going to have, we're doing something new this year in which um, each one of our managing editors is going to um, come up and give a little uh, speech about the piece and why we picked it. Um, and so you get a little bit of insight. Um, you're gonna see all of our managing editors who are, um, including myself, the editor-in-chief, our uh, stage and screen nonfiction, fiction, poetry, section art editors, um, our other editor-in-chief, Lauren Gorsi, unfortunately, is only here with us in spirit. Um, <laughs> she had a misconnection, um, but she is here, and we're so excited that she is joining with us in digital spirit, true to the form of exposition review. Um, okay, so then, uh, Couple last notes, what else am I missing? Oh, um, in addition to our annual issue, we also do flash contests. Um, we actually have one writing right now. I'm the guest judge, you have two days to enter. Um, if you are any writers out there who are interested in short form narratives and want the chance to be published and potentially win a cash prize. Um, we also have our staged reading, which is coming up in June. That'll be featured, the stage plays that we publish will be featured in a, uh, in a reading that's part of Hollywood Fringe. Um, so you can check that on our website. You can also sign up, as was mentioned, for our newsletter. We send out a monthly newsletter about submission opportunities as well as various literary goings-ons that we are promoting. Um, yeah, and then so we'll have more refreshments. We'll do a little reception after the readings. Um, we'll also have desserts that will be out. So um, be sure to stick around. You'll be able to talk to the writers, the editors, et cetera. Um, and again, yeah, thank you so much for being here. Uh, so without further ado, I'm going to have um, our visual arts and experimental narratives editor, Brianna, come up. Thanks, Jess. Thanks, Lauren. Thank you, everybody, for being here. I'm Brianna Smike. I am our visual art and experimental narratives editor. Uh, I, for me, these genres are a bit of my passion where literature and art meet, and these genres, having them in the journal is really what makes us true multi-genre literary and also art journal. Uh, we, and they are also our, they, you know, the cover is our uh, introduction and invitation to our audience to come and see what we do. It's that first thing that they see that brings them into us and shares all of these wonderful narratives that we have on our pages. Uh, when, and I tonight have the pleasure of introducing our cover artist, Doug Fogelson. Uh, Doug also has a few other pieces on the pages of our journal that you'll get to see, which actually just went live. Uh, 
what really drew me to Doug's work is the repetition. Uh, I, I love repetition both in literature and in the visual narratives. And as you'll see here, we have some natural common objects being repeated trees. He also has series that include uh, sort of obsolete or uh, retro objects such as records and letterpress letters. Uh, I invite you to uh, take a look at his website, look, look at his work. He's going to talk to you a little bit more about it in a moment. Um, but first, a few, a few words on his background. Uh, Doug really is very fitting for this genre. He, he works in a lot of different forms as well as the rest of us. He's actually in town right now judging a book contest. So uh, he, he really fits in with our multi-genre spirit. Uh, he, studied at the School of Art Chicago and also at uh, Columbia Chicago College. He also teaches at uh, uh, the Art Institute of Chicago, excuse me. And his works are included in permanent collections, including a museum you may or may not have heard of called the Getty, uh, as well as the Museum of Contemporary Photography. Uh, he also just had two exhibitions uh, in Europe, which he just returned from uh, viewing. He founded and directed Front 40 Press, an independent lit, uh, publishing imprint, and he serves as the board of, or the president of the board of Filter Photo, a gallery and uh, gallery space and festival organization based in Chicago. As he is, uh, it's I'm very excited to hear what he has to say and to introduce you all to Doug Vogelson. Thank you very much for the kind introduction. It's serendipitous that I'm here because I am judging the National Indie Excellence Book Awards right now, and um, I'm the last one in the in the round robin of judges. Um, but it's also something that I administer because it was my mom's business, and uh, she passed away, so now I run that contest. So I would encourage you guys to take a look at it. The website is indieexcellence.com. We have a few. Um, literary contest. It's for independent self-published authors and presses uh, who are not up at the large scale. And um, we have cash prizes. We have sponsorship prizes. Plug, plug, plug. Take a look at it. But really, uh, the serendipity doesn't end there because I wasn't, I wasn't planning on being here. But um, I was contacted by Exposition Review. And um, it's just been kind of charmed since the, we made contact in the beginning. First of all, I'm stoked that they dig this particular series. Um, it's called, the series that they liked and, and used for the cover is called Forest, and uh, it's like F-A-U-X, rest. And I use, uh, I'm gonna tell you about my process, but I use different materials to make photograms, color photograms, so some of you probably know, it's just a very basic um, early form of photography where you would just have a sensitive, uh, light sensitized piece of paper or film and you just put an object on top, turn the lights on and off, it leaves a shadow. Um, in this case, I'm using uh, transparency film, so it's color, and that has to be in complete darkness. And then the film has this amazing memory of color, so if you remember a color wheel, on one side would be blue, on the other side would be yellow. When they mix, it would turn green. So imagine I put some object on top of light-sensitive uh, material, and then turn on a blue light, then I move the material, turn on a yellow light, the film then remembers the parts that are uncovered by, and hit by both colors, turns green. Then if I do another move and another color, it becomes a secondary blend from that and so on and so on. So things get kind of wacky in terms of pastels and tertiary colors. Um, the reason why this is uh, faux rest, hi, I see somebody who's actually <laughs> watching from a t screen. Oh, hi, yeah, hi. Uh, so uh, I'm wondering if you guys, do you think these are real trees or it's real nature? Um, do you have any idea what it is that is causing the photos to, or the, the, the shadows to happen? Broccoli? Broccoli? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was just at the farmer's market in Echo Park, yes, from that. Um, well, these are the scale model trees that are made of like foam and styrofoam and plastic that you would use for an architectural model or maybe a train set, if you guys were into that. Um, so I went to some hobby shops and I ordered some stuff and I went to some aquarium shops and got some things from there. And, uh, you know, the film that I, that I use for this is only 8 by 10 is the largest size you can use, so I'm limited in that scale. 
Um, so I'm just putting these, you know, on and then exposing them to color. And they just add up to kind of a convincing, if you take the color out of it, uh, looks a little bit like that feeling of looking through trees. Um, the dimensionality too, like things that are closest to the paper are sharp and things that are up above are blurry. And um, there are more on my website. Uh, so I'm interested in, uh, kind of interesting, like, you know, to be on the, the front of a, of a journal that is covering so many topics and genres. Uh, I'm interested in those kinds of chance um, analogs and, and coincidences that come from, like, putting different mediums together and being more inclusive and encompassing of all different forms of art. And I'm a big fan of, it, like, uh, supporting artists that if they have to change what they're doing, even though I do uh, myself a lot of repetitive work and I do these little series, like this is full rest series, I do a series of crystals or I'll do a series of salt or I'll do a series of old magnetic recording tape or records or you name it, different stuff, cameras themselves, different whimsical objects that become formal in the repetition. So there's a, there's a formula to how I'm making these things. But um, I also believe that if you need to do neon and do a, a performance and make a sculpture, you should just do everything. And so an arts journal like this, literary and arts journal, uh, I just feel like it's really comfortable space for me. And uh, also with the publishing uh, that I did, also we, we embraced that same kind of mentality. We didn't just pigeonhole ourselves um, into just, it was an arts base, but we, we did a graphic novel, we did a range of things. So without uh, going on too long, um, yeah, that's, that's how the work was made. And I'm very thankful to be here. Appreciate the time. And I'm looking forward to hear some readings. Hi. Hi, Lauren. Um, I know Lauren really wanted to be here tonight. And so I'm really happy that I am grateful that I get to speak to her face, too. Um, so I'm Rebecca, I'm the fiction editor for this journal, um, and I want to talk a little bit about um, Kyle Raymond Fitzpatrick, um, who is going to be reading from his piece, Bones. Um, this piece really spoke to me in a lot of ways. Um, I was so happy when it arrived in my inbox um, via a great friend um, who had mentioned the journal to Kyle. Um, and when I read it, I was so delighted. Um, it was just one of the easiest things ever to read um, and spoke to me in a ton of ways. I never pretend to know what an author intends because I always hated that when we were in school and we were like, what does this author really mean? And I'm like, how would I know? Um, <laughs> the author like, is not inside my head. Um, but for me, this piece really talked about uh, like understanding what's inside us about coping mechanisms, about loss, about stripping things down to what's raw. Um, and so now I get to talk a little bit about Kyle. Um, aside from being connected to my wonderful friend, which makes him wonderful too, um, he has been, and I'm sorry, grabbing my phone, Lauren. Um, he has been published in a long list of publications, um, so I needed the phone. My, one of them being Playboy, one of my favorite magazines. Um, Los Angeles Review of Books, Clean Mobs, Eater, Pop Sugar, Los Angeles Magazine, and more. He's a big fan of dogs, champagne, and short shorts, um, which I'm going to guess are both kinds of short shorts, like also fiction, um, which are, is my favorite kind of fiction as well. And his screen name everywhere, I assume, is everywhere, is at 1234Kyle5678. Um, so yeah, Kyle, <laughs> come do a better job of talking than I did. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. That was a really great plug for everything. Uh, thank you guys for being here. Um, yeah, so I guess the only other thing to say before this story is like, it's, yeah, I just, I had a dream one day after watching the movie Coco. I thought that was a good movie, but it was also kind of fucked up. Um, the whole like kind of turning to bone part. So I had a dream that this was happening and it kind of came out. Uh, anyway, but it's called Bones. <clears throat> the problem started when he couldn't feel his fingers. He thought it was the weather, the cold, but it was something else. His fingertips were white. They look flat, I told him. I picked up his hand, drawing the fingers close, closer to my eyes. They were harder than flesh, 
as if the skin had calcified, salt bodies rising out of the Dead Sea. I tapped a few fingers with my own. They were like a buttery marble that could be scraped or spread. I tapped his, his pointer finger with, my, with the nail of my thumb, pressing in lightly. Does that hurt? He shook his head, giving me a grimace, fear widening his features like an empty headline. His breath was heavy, his eyes became full. It must be the weather, I told him, squeezing his hand in mine, turning them over to kiss his palms. A little numbness is normal this time of year. I'm sure it's nothing. We went to the hospital. I drove him and waited in the lobby, ripping through magazines to find any image to replace the white fingertips. A snowy vista, a coconut cake, the shaggy hair of an aging man, anything to take the image, anything to absorb it. His whiteness kept fingering my brain, poking the back of my eyes. I imagine his fingerprints disappearing, rubbing off on my skin. His touching me would become foreign. There must have been a problem with his diet, the doctors told him. An imbalanced diet can contribute to poor circulation and numbness, both of which can desaturate the skin, causing a paleness. It could be diabetes. He waved pills at me as we drove home from the pharmacy. My diet is fine, he said. I don't have diabetes. He whispered the words to himself over and over again as the cold sun set. He didn't have diabetes. He was right about that. He started wearing gloves. I didn't notice them at first, but they became more apparent as warm weather approached. I just don't want to look at them, he explained. Understandable, I admitted, but it all became so bizarre when he wore them to bed. They were black leather and felt like the bare stomach of a dog on my chest every night. He wrapped his arms around me, and I too became clutched, gloved. There was a comic, dormant kinkiness that was untouched between us. Then came the shirts and the socks, long sleeves at all times, increasingly odd as spring was firmly upon us. The socks weren't as strange since he always had cold feet, something I joked about from when we first met. That stopped. The gloves, the shirts, the socks wrapped him in himself, containing his body as he stored himself away from the world. He resonated a strange warmth, becoming a soft radiator. After weeks of this, after being so cold for so long, I confronted this normalizing and demanded an answer in bed. What was the problem? If you won't be yourself with me, why won't you be yourself with anyone? What are you hiding? He froze, his back fused to the headboard, a socked foot twisted around the hem of flannel pajama pants. These two were new. We always slept in our underwear. I'm cold, he shrugged. I tried to find his eyes. Don't lie to me. I'm not lying, he said. He sniffed the way at the tips of teardrops. If you aren't telling me your problems, I know you aren't telling anyone. I put one hand on his shoulder and the other on his sternum, pressing into his bony chest. You have to tell me. Then I was sniffling. We hugged. His face was smooth, no stubble against my neck. We've been through worse. We'll get through this. He nodded his head. He was fully sobbing. I grabbed his gloved hands and squeezed. We've gotten through worse, I repeated. He pulled away, staring at, a glove, at glove palms before hiding them in one big fist, a hand within a hand. I don't want to. Please, I placed my hand over his. I promise you'll feel better. We don't keep any secrets from each other. I lowered my head to his, settling into his eyes. Remember? His twinkle was missing. The glacial blue of his eyes had faded, melting down his cheeks. The way we looked at each other, my favorite part of his body, was turning white too. He stared beyond me. There was the briefest nod, and he tugged off a glove at the fingers. He covered the tips with, one, with, the, with his other hand before making a fist. He shook his head. I don't want to, he said. He had become a child before me. Please, he looked at me. Please don't make me. I was scared. I didn't want to see them. I didn't want the image of him to decay anymore, but I knew that he would do this for me. He would push me to open my body to him, to share in this tragedy as it unfolded. This would bring us together, he would say. I grabbed his confidence and reached for the sleeve forearm of his ungloved hand, and I held the ungloved hand until his grip loosened, the fist readying to bloom in my palm. He closed his eyes, tears dropping into his lap. Show me, I told him. He nodded, revealing tan hands ending at white tips. Like the ocean receding from the land, his skin, his flesh, was pulling away from the underlying skeletal system. There was no blood, there were no wounds. It was all so clean, as if the, as if the brown, dark tip of a sharpened pencil, a speck of irregularity that made all the difference. He appeared to be turning into hardened chalk. Thank you.
Hello, my name is Laura Rensing, and I am a managing editor at Exposition Review, as well as the treasurer. So I make sure that our uh, website stays up because we paid our bills. Um, so this next piece that I am introducing comes from a collaboration between Exposition Review and another Los Angeles-based literary nonprofit, Right Girl. Right Girl is a really amazing organization uh, that mentors young girls in middle and high school and teaches them about the craft of writing. Um, and they teach them everything from poetry to short stories. They have workshops on stage and screen. Um, and our one of our own um, editorial board members, she also edits, is editing their current publication. So good job, Anne Lee, on pulling double duty. She, uh, she edited ours first, though, so thanks for that. <laughs> Um, so because Right Girl does such a fantastic job of teaching these girls how to write, um, Exposition Review, each year we put on an event at the Hatchery, which is a writing co-working space. It's a beautiful space, uh, and we teach them about how to take their work out into the quote-unquote real world, um, and about the submission process specifically for literary journals. And at the end of the workshop, we publish one to two pieces from the girls who've attended the workshop. Uh, and this year, one of those girls uh, is Kristen Nave, uh, who's been published uh, before with her short story. She's currently attending the University of Laverne. Um, she's actually a Right Girl alum um, in creative writing, and this is going to be her first uh, poetry piece that has been published. And you wouldn't think it, though, because the imagery and the use of language in her poetry is just so full of extra meaning. So you have the surface level, and then, which uh, <laughs> one of our previous uh, issues was called surface, but this one it really does bring around a whole new sense of meaning and wonder to what she is talking about, even though it is a darker subject. So uh, please welcome Kristen Nave with Justice Favors Fortune. Hello. Um, I wrote this in a poetry class um, last year during the Kavanaugh hearings, and I was inspired by that and a lot of other stories in the news. So here's Justice Faber's Fortune. Fortune was holding his hand, whispering in his ear, assurances like rotten raspberries, too soft on the tongue, turning to mush and dribbling down his shoulder. The judge was piling smooth white stones on one side of the scale that the Lady J had lent him. He promised to take good care. One for every A, touchdown, friend, time he held the door open for an old lady. Fingers on his hand, digit in his, in his phone number, years left in his life, until they, were, until they were spilling over onto his desk. On the other side, a single solo cup, color red. His lawyers had their own stones, black and jagged. They piled them on my arms, legs, breasts, apex of thighs, first reverse pen for to do, spit in my mouth and called me Cassandra. Nobody ever blames Apollo or Brock or Bart. The jury came out singing with a sheet cake, cut into it, pink for girl, blue for boy, white for not guilty, no yolks in him, gobbled it amongst them, sweetness stinging their teeth. He filled with, filled with helium, rose to the ceiling, bounced off the lights. His parents pulled party horns from their pockets, wet with spittle, blow, filled the room with raucous. Fortune told me, don't be a sore loser. Thank you so much, Krista. Um, so I have the pleasure of introducing um, another fiction piece by T.S. Adams. Um, he'll be reading a selection from his short story, The Superhero Way. So a little bit about T.S. He lives with his wife, son, and bull mastiffs in the San Fernando Valley, where he is not working on a screenplay. Um, his short fiction has appeared in Beneath Ceaseless Skies, Madcap Review, Santa Monica Review, and Pembroke, and he has worked forthcoming in Sierra Nevada Review, Faultline, and Lady Churchill's Rosebud Wristlet. Got it. Um, and so to tell you a little bit about um, the piece I'll be reading, Superhero Way, as editor-in-chief, um, Lauren and I uh, are one of the last people to... Um, read any piece. First it has to go through our readers, then it has to go through the section editors. So um, we only read the finalists and we're reading them alongside all of the editors when they're rereading them and um, casting their votes and sharing their uh, many, many usually strongly opinionated thoughts on those finalists as we um, kind of, you know, decide on the final lineup for the issue. So knowing that I was going to introduce the superhero way, I wanted to go back to those um, 
that original vote that I cast and the comments that I made, my first impression. Um, and I realized that I actually didn't have that much to say about the superhero way. I'd simply written in all caps, yes, love or accepting this, fight me. Um, it's a fitting comment for a story about crime fighters, um, but all of my fellow, fellow editors can relate. Every year there is inevitably a piece that strikes you and that you will uh, do anything to make sure that we get the privilege of publishing, including physically fighting them. Um, for me, I am a massive nerd and comic book fan, and I've already seen Avengers Endgame like way too many times. Um, so I was definitely looking forward to reading something with superhero in the title. I was already hyped. Um, but we've all been burned by pieces that have, you know, these amazing titles and then lackluster delivery. This was not the case. Um, the Superhero Way is a gritty, visceral piece, and it's a perfect storm of, of intrigue and action and dark humor that plays really well with a theme of wonder um, that's naturally inherent in any superhero mythos. Um, I especially love the sharp, cynical voice of the um, protagonist, um, Osiris. So he draws you into his world so quickly, yet the narrative does a really great job of unfolding slowly and revealing more of that world. And that is slightly super and also slightly awful, but in the best way. So without further ado, uh, here is T.S. Thank you. Uh, I'm only reading the first scene, but uh, it still takes me just a minute over five minutes, so I'm going to jump right in. The Superhero Way. Captain Superfriend is not a superhero. He's part of the RLSH Real Life Superhero Movement. He wears a Halloween Superman costume and Zorro mask, helps people find lost cats, and calls 911 on a cell phone when there's trouble. His website reveals his secret identity and links to a sister site for his real estate agency. Both sites mention that the Chamber of Commerce, or maybe it was the Lions Club, gave him a commendation not for fighting crime, but for his community spirit, and probably for being 20-something and one of the Valley's top realtors. <laughs> he shouldn't have been out after dark in any neighborhood I patrol, sucking in his stomach so it wouldn't hang over his belt handing out flyers for an LAPD community outreach picnic. Crouched in the shadow of a rooftop air conditioning unit, I saw it coming before the captain noticed the four guys in wife beaters and saggy jeans, maybe gang members, maybe not, but lightweights either way. I've been hoping they'd rob the dry cleaners under my feet or maybe assault a customer, but I pretty much resigned myself to a wasted night. Then the captain rounded the corner, and I started stretching and warming up as much as I could without leaving my shadow, even before the kid with a soul patch sprouting through acne like pink bubble wrap yelled, check it out, it's super fag. No one heard me hit the ground, feet absorbing the impact without strain. Beach muscles are well and good. The captain should have worked on his. But I have priorities a bodybuilder never thinks of, none more important than the feet. Pilates reformer is crucial to my training. Still unnoticed, I let things develop a little. That's how it's done. You have to let them earn their beating or you lose the moral high ground. <laughs> Once they had him down and were kicking him, not even that hard, I stepped out of the shadows and said, the weight of your sins betrays you. Face the judgment of Osiris. That was Eric's shtick, and it's not as impressive when I do it, mostly because I can't fly, so I don't say it floating four feet off the ground. I'm a little tired of saying it, really. After 10 years almost, I'd rather switch to, you're a criminal and I'm going to kick your ass. But it's a legacy. I'm Osiris and there's no one else to do it. Soul Patch nominated himself to handle villainous banter and he opened with, what the fuck? <laughs> he had a badly drawn skull tattooed on his neck or it might have been Edvard Munch's The Scream or maybe he told the guy with the needle, give me a mean potato. Sweaty pimples glistened like fish eggs, and I didn't want to touch him, but that's why I wear the gloves. I made his gargoyle face my pinata and candy teeth skittered on the pavement. Right away, Captain Real Estate yelled, no, don't hurt them, it's not the superhero way, lying on his back on the sidewalk, holding his ribs and crying a little, trying to tell me about the superhero way. I probably didn't bother much with choreography. I don't remember. 
It was like being in the shower, rehearsing another argument with Don about why our comic store shouldn't carry fucking Simpsons action figures and forgetting whether I've washed my hair. By the time the bad guys limped away, I had a whole speech worked out. Because that's exactly the superhero way. A superhero represents something incompatible with Captain Superfriend's red polyester boot tops with the elastic straps that loop under his real shoes. Even my costume, charcoal gray hood and cloak, verdigris green mask, head-to-toe custom spandex and neoprene would be ridiculous if I stood in the street giving lectures, letting people laugh at my tights. Contrary to reputation, Americans have no talent for idolatry. They can appreciate the idea of a superhero, and the sound of breaking bones will keep them focused for a few moments. Then you have to disappear before the snickering begins. You can be less brutal if you're Eric, holding an SUV above your head, but he would still throw the car without a thought for the non-combatant who parked it at the curb. In a world where parents negotiate with toddlers, I used to think Eric should be more sensitive to the niceties. Now I know the golden age is not coming back until we learn to respect superheroes again. I was ready to explain some of this to the captain when Isis stepped out of the drugstore across the street. You're done here, right? Were you, shop were you shopping dressed like that? Isis is Felicia Page in a costume a lot like mine, but mostly gold and without the Kevlar panels because she's too vain to cover her tits. She also keeps two dozen small onk-handled knives, darts really, in a sort of bandolier that wraps around her hips and thighs in a vaguely fetishy way. They're smeared with a paralyzing formula she may have learned from Eric, though she says it was revealed to her in a dream. Felicia is a brown belt in Hapkido, only a green belt in Eric's time, and accurate with her darts if the target will hold still. Not exactly Avengers level skills. I let her sidekick for me because she's the only one left with an actual superpower. I never tell Felicia when I'm going patrolling or where, but when I find action, she often shows up. She's also waited at places I didn't go, but always places I thought about going, and she always witnesses a crime which she may or may not take on alone. When she told me she also has visions of the past, I said most people call those memories. <laughs> she said, no, Junior, not the way things turned out the way they might have been. She had a vision where we let Eric have that girl, and the girl became Isis, and Felicia and I got together. I almost said the last part could still happen, but I was in uniform at the time, and Osiris is never pathetic. Even when Eric died, leering at a tawny adolescent, oblivious to the dismay of his team, he was never pathetic. Captain Superfriend was nothing but pathetic. He sprawled across a grimy constellation of used chewing gum like a sad connect-the-dots activity. Felicia said, I felt like you needed me. I said, for them, either you're slipping or you think I am. I felt like you might need me to hold you back. What the hell does that mean? Anyway, it's over. Felicia shrugged, golden boobs filling the brackets of her crossed arms. Of course, her expression was hidden by her mask. I turned back to Captain Superfriend, trying to reassemble my speech, but it all rose up in me somehow, and I pulled off his mask and hit him. I drove my fist into his eye, crunching infraorbital bones, and told him, there are no more superheroes, asshole. And the rest is in the issue. Thank you. Our next piece is another right girl piece. Um, and it's from Rachel Alarcio, who is a current member of Right Girl. She's a senior at John Marshall High School, and next year she'll be attending college at the University of Kalamazoo in Michigan. So congratulations. What? Yep, I messed it up, guys. Kalamazoo College, Kalamazoo College um, in Michigan. Um, she uh, enjoys creative writing, guitar, and photography. We'll be hearing uh, from the first part. And I think what drew us to this piece is uh, beyond the amazing title, which I'll tell you in a minute, um, is she really captured just a feeling that is very hard to describe. Um, the way that she writes her poetry, you kind of just feel like you are falling into the moment um, and it really seems to defy description and yet somehow she manages to put words on the page. So without further ado, this is Rachel Alarcio and uh, her piece, uh, shuffled playlist on Young Love, not Spotify Premium because we're too poor for that. 
Vibrato, legato, tremolo, keyboard karaoke, jukebox of youth, wish to be someone to you. You make me smile, so kiss me beneath vanilla twilight. Shut up and dance beneath Griffith Park stars. Carve-toi plus moi. Kick Jansport knockoffs curbside. Fluorescent lamps blink awake. Metro maps strewn along sidewalks. We're six pence none the richer. Two lamps blink awake. Oh, sorry. Uh, two teens, two broke for Netflix. So chill. Strum my G-string. Sing. Take me out after 307 rings. Hello, uh, my name is Melinda Hensley. Um, I'm the stage and screen editor and a managing editor at Exposition Review. Um, before I introduce our, our, next, uh, our next reader, I just wanted to say a special thank you to Lauren and Jess. You guys put so much effort into this issue. We all did, but to know that you guys pushed, helped push this journal off initially when we first met and said, hey, we can do this. <laughs> we can do it, we did it. <laughs> and that I owe so much of that to you guys, to all of you guys, so thank you. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, so I am gonna introduce you guys to Charles Duffy, who wrote A Place by the Fire, which I loved. Um, so I'm gonna do bios first and then say happy things later. So Charles Duffy is a writer and designer working with local animation companies and producers to develop new shows for streaming services. He, had, he brought two folks with him tonight to read, Patrick and Hanako. Uh, Patrick McConnell is a writer, photographer, voice artist, and frequent contributor to Hit Record. And Hanako is a senior at California School of the Arts and will attend the University of Redlands School of Music as a piano performance major in the fall. Okay, so when I first read this piece, um, first of all, comedy is my bag. It is what I love, and it's what I love, and it's what I push in the journal all the time. Sorry. <laughs> but I really love comedy because I feel like it says what we all feel in the way we always wished we said it. Um, the, you know, the, the perfect comeback you thought of two weeks later in your shower that you yelled out anyway, that's what comedy is. Um, and especially, it's especially hard to do in screenplays because you only have so much real estate and you have to conform a little bit. And when I start reading screenplays, a lot of the time I constantly weigh creativity versus producibility. When I read through something, especially a screenplay, I think, this will become something. What can we do to make this into something? And, you know, Charles, when I started reading, I thought that way at first, and then you literally transported me, literally, all over the place. It's amazing. Um, and you also made me laugh, too, which is great. Um, uh, one of the best things about, uh, about doing comedy and screenplay is quick, quippy, amazing dialogue. And you did that. And I loved Sam and Thornton. I, I really, really, really adored this piece because it makes us, it makes us wonder about uh, who we are as people, whether or not we're ever really satisfied, um, where the grass is really greener, and in fact, it, it really isn't anywhere. <laughs> um, but yeah, I really adored this piece. And speaking of quick dialogue, I'm gonna be quick. So you guys get up here. Thanks for coming out. Um, so as you heard from, thank you for that introduction. Um, you're gonna have uh, two rather introverted writers and a piano player uh, <laughs> try to read a script for you. So we ask you to augment uh, our reading with your imagination. In addition, Hanukkah here is gonna play a man yeah. and a British accent, or no? I'm so sorry guys, apologies <laughs> in advance. <laughs> okay, here we go. Okay. Exterior, Skid Row, night. Dark streets lined with abandoned warehouses. Downtown Los Angeles shimmers in the distance. Two homeless men warm themselves at a flaming trash can. Thornton looks relatively new to the street. Middle-aged, thin, stubble on his face, clothing not too soiled. He wears glasses with the right lens completely missing. Sam is a veteran of the row. Elderly, overweight, sweat-stained skin, scruffy beard, dingy clothing. Sam sniffs the air. Smell that? 
Thornton squints his right eye and peers through his one remaining lens. He searches the dark street. I don't see anything. Suddenly, a man-shaped silhouette appears ten yards away. The silhouette crackles with energy and pulses with light. Thornton and Sam stare, growing more scared as the light brightens. They shield their eyes and stagger back, but just as the light reaches a blinding intensity, it's gone, leaving a man standing where the silhouette had been. This is Richard Surrey, 30, neatly groomed and dressed in Victorian-era clothing. He looks around, disoriented. Richard carries a mechanical cylinder about the size of a loaf of bread. The device, covered with dials and switches, looks crude by modern standards, but smokes with raw power. Richard sees the two homeless men and walks over. Impossible! I can't believe it! Thornton and Sam exchange a wary glance. Just look at yourselves! Thornton and Sam try to tidy themselves up. If homelessness still exists, then poverty still exists. If poverty, then crime. If crime, then violence. If violence, then social degeneration. The two homeless men stare at him, blank. I see public education is still doing a bang-up job. What's the point of time travel if you can't get anywhere? As the truth sinks in, their cynical eyes fill with awe. You're a, a time traveler? Sam points at the mechanical cylinder. And that's a time machine? Yes, yes, just spin the time dial and off you go. Richard turns slowly around, gazing at the ruined street. My day was full of such promise, scientific discovery, social progress. We laid the foundations for a new golden age. I skip one little century into the future for a glimpse at paradise on earth, and what do I find? You. This has nothing. As Richard turns back around, <laughs> Sam punches him in the face. So we're going to jump ahead now. At this point, the two homeless men steal the time machine, which is about <laughs> the size of a loaf of bread, and it has a dial. You just spin it forward to go forward in time. You spin it back to go backwards. And they decide they're sick of the modern world. They're going to go back, back to a simpler time, back to where you can build your life with your own hands, back to where you didn't feel like you were a cog in a machine. So, Sam puts a hand on the time dial and spins it. Shimmering light appears around Sam. Thornton grabs Sam's arm. The light extends around him as well. The light grows brighter. The crackling silhouette swallows the two men and explodes. Exterior, London, 1840, night. Light explodes and fades, leaving Sam and Thornton standing on a narrow London street. Men, women, and children crowd the dirty lane. Aged before their time, backs bent, eyes dimmed, they look like the cast from Dickens' Worst Nightmare. Everyone stares in terror at the two men. Looks like London, mid-1800s. We were in New York. How will we end up in London? Well, this is just a theory, but I think we step out of the space-time continuum. We don't move an inch or age a breath, and otherwise we would grow younger and vanish on the day we were born. But we're, we were in New York. We don't move, but everything else does. So Earth rotates backwards under our feet, so when we step back into the space-time continuum, it's like sticking a pin in a spinning globe. They notice several men and children warming themselves around flaming bins. Everyone stares. Thornton adjusts his glasses, squinting. Sam sniffs. Farther back? Much. Sam spins the dial. Exterior, exterior, Russia, 1700, night. Light explodes and fades, and the two men find themselves on a snowy plain in Russia. Scores of Russian soldiers stand in the snow. They look as tattered as their flag fluttering in the cold breeze. A captain sits atop a gaunt horse. Everyone stares in surprise at the two men. Thornton and Sam stare back, shivering in the cold. Sam sniffs and Thornton squints through his one lens. Russia, around the time of Peter I, I'd say. Lancing right, they see a, a group of wounded soldiers warming themselves around a pile of burning wood. A few soldiers advance, swords raised. Time to go? Way back this time. Sam gets a good grip and spins the dial hard. <laughs> so if you want to see how much further back they go, <laughs> log on and read the rest in the journal. <laughs> Thank you. Hi, I'm Ann Lee Ellingson. I'm the nonfiction editor at Exposition Review. 
And I'm here to introduce Mia Nakaji Monier. She's a graduate of the Masters of Professional Writing program, as are all of, all of us. <laughs> um, and she's been a friend of Expo. Um, her writing has appeared in the Boston Globe, BuzzFeed, The Rumpus, Washington Post, and as you'll find out when you read her piece, Oprah Magazine. In addition to these credits, she's written a piece for us that's a beautiful and insightful meditation on culture and religion, on death and creative angst, on anxiety and depression, and how, and how all those things intersect and collide. She's also written about how one can ground oneself in ritual, even if, even if you might be an atheist. Yeah. Thank you all for coming out here, um, especially to my parents who are amazingly tolerant of me writing about them all the time. <laughs> um, so this piece is called Kokoro Yasume, which is something I explain later in the piece, not the section that I'm reading, but it's something I got from my mom, which basically means uh, rest for the heart. So this is an essay about death anxiety and ritual and religion. And because I'm reading just a small part of it, not all of that is in there, but you can read the rest on Expo's website. On New Year's Day, my parents and I meet at the pop-up Shinto Shrine in Little Tokyo in downtown LA because my mom wants to pray for luck, mostly for my brothers who live in the Midwest now and once went months without heat due to a shady landlord. One of them frequently sleeps in his car, even in the winter. He seems to live on instant ramen and the wildest meats he can find, chicken feet, frog legs, marinated in pig blood. The other studies neuroscience and poetry, diving deep and so far always coming up again. New Year's Day, oral shogatsu, is the one Japanese holiday we've consistently celebrated. My Japanese mom, my American dad, my brothers, and me. When we were younger, we celebrated with traditional osachi dishes made by either my mom or my auntie, each bearing a specific kind of luck. Syrupy black beans for hard work, tiny candied sardines for a good harvest. Now that we've grown and my auntie is nearly 100, we meet our Japanese American relatives at an olive garden or Marie calendars in the San Gabriel Valley. <laughs> Afterward, my auntie hands out the syrupy black beans in tiny glass jars. On one side of the white tent holding the pop-up shrine, a folding table displays rows of omamori, good luck amulets, embroidered silky rectangles on cords for safe driving, love, business, passing exams. My mom chooses one for each of my brothers, which the shrine attendant passes across the table in a plain brown paper bag. My mom tucks it in, a, in the tote bag I made for her with fabric she chose from a local quilt, quilt show. On an olive green background, a repeating pattern of daruma, the round red dolls that stand back up when you push them over, representing perseverance. Nana korobi yaoki goes their slogan, fall down seven times, get up eight. For my mom, they are also avatars of my brother, the one with the meats. When he lived at home, he had a row of them in different sizes lining the top of his bookshelf. We walk to the other side of the tent, which holds a wooden altar decorated in offerings of mochi and mandarin oranges. A collection box in front bears a sign explaining how to pray, a sequence of claps and bows. The tent shrine lacks the gravity of the shrines I visited when I lived in Japan for a year during college. The path of red wooden gates, the craggy rocks offshore decked with paper garlands, even the local neighborhood shrine with its accordion-folded lanterns and Shiba guard dog. But absent all of that, the tent will do for my mom, for us. We throw our coins into the box, clap, bow, clap again, and leave the tent. I used to wonder why I felt uncomfortable calling myself an atheist, even though I probably was, still am, one in the eyes of my Catholic, Mormon, and non-denominational Christian friends. In Texas, where I spent ages 12 through 16, atheists wore the label loudly to make space for themselves in a state of assumed Christianity. But I grew up with some kind of religion, one I didn't even call a religion, one I couldn't name. My mom is a big-time feeler. She often cried as she read us bedtime stories, the Chronicles of Narnia, the Wrinkle in Time series, Hans Christian Andersen fairy tales illustrated by Chihiro Iwasaki, beautiful books she bought with her employee discount when she worked at the bookstore in Little Tokyo when she was younger, the bookstore where she met my dad. This goes so deep, or humans are like this, aren't they, are the kinds of comments she makes often, even now when she tells me about a news story she read on her lunch break. Long after her mom died, she called out for her in Japanese, randomly, like while washing dishes. She explained to me once that she thought her mom was still here somehow, scattered in the air. I pictured her dissolved like the original Little Mermaid, sea foam. My dad, meanwhile, liked to bring us outside when something interesting was happening with the planets. Once outside a ramen shop, he pointed out three planets in the moon making an arc across the sky. A woman came out of the restaurant halfway through and asked him to go through them again. My mom didn't even look embarrassed. 
As we moved across the country, these were our constants. These and the Unitarian Universalist Church. Less a church than a liberal collective, people craving meaning on Sundays without dogma or specificity. In Peoria, Berkeley, San Jose, Dallas, Bellevue, and Palos Verdes, we had potluck lunches, Wiccan celebrated Sabbaths. Atheists walked out of sermons at a Christian-leaning minister's mention of God. My dad says he and my mom picked the Unitarian Church for us because they knew that if they didn't, our friends might take us to an evangelical church, and a couple of mine did. In elementary school, I went to vacation Bible school with a neighbor where we made snow globes out of baby food jars and where on the last day, the pastor asked all campers ready to accept Jesus into their hearts to go into a back room connected to the sanctuary. My neighbor came back crying because by the time she'd gotten to the room, they'd run out of coloring books. I wanted to be Christian sometimes. I was jealous of the Mormons dances, the Catholics conspicuous Ash Wednesday club. My religion was the ghosts of my memories and my parents before me, so different from my own and hard to picture from the distance of an ocean or a long state. It was the friendly spirits and the fictional characters like them, Daruma the namesake monk, with his legs numb from meditation, Jizo by the roadside, the Mumin's gentle companionship, the red shoe girl dancing until her feet bled, Makuro Kuroske, or soot sprites, hovering communally like a school of fish over the floors of the house in my neighbor, my neighbor Totoro. It was nostalgia for trees that lined the neighborhood we'd just left behind, broadleaf maples, oak shedding helicopter seeds, the romantic ease of eucalyptus, a separating of my spirit each time we moved, the guilt of multiple allegiance, allegiances, a tangle of roots below, branches above reaching. Thank you. And that concludes our reading. This was a uh, fantastic sampling, but a small sampling of the works that are available online. The issue went live like five minutes before this reading began. So you can now find it online at expositionreview.com. Again, thank you guys so much for coming out. Um, I have to mention, uh, you know, Mindy was so kind to mention Lauren and I, but Lauren and I could definitely not do this um, because it takes an entire village to do put on this issue, but also all of the events that we do, readings like this, our staged reading, um, flash contests, and get through all of the submissions that we get, because we get a lot of them. So there's a lot of reading, like I mentioned earlier, a lot of arguing, um, and we are so appreciative for those um, that have come together to help us, and I want to acknowledge them. Um, you've met most of our managing editors, but we also have a team of associate editors and readers. I know one Chris is here. Thank you, Chris. Yay. Um, and then we also have um, our international gang who not, could not all be here. Um, we have Blaine, who's in Hawaii, Dave Gregory, Abby Mitchell, who's in the UK, Sarah Smith-Narhi, Casey J. Osborne, Alani Robinson, and Channing Sargent. We also have our readers, um, April Davila, Ramona Pilar, uh, Leslie Ridgway, Phyllis Smith, uh, Thomas John Spadini, and Frankie Victoria. And also this year we had um, interns for the first time, which was amazing. They were extremely helpful. Um, and so I have to mention them, um, Elena Doyle and Lauren Welch, who are in Seattle and Minnesota, maybe. Um, obviously not here, but they're here in our hearts. Um, so if you guys are interested, you know, we're always accepting um, applications for readers. So if you're interested in getting involved, um, feel free to come up and talk to one of us if you want to submit to us. Again, we have calls for submissions opening up going all the time. Sign up for our newsletter and you'll get them directly into your inbox. It's very convenient. Um, and I believe that's it. Um, again, thank you so much. We're going to be setting up desserts in just a second. Those are going to be out. You can have um, more refreshments. Please drink the wine. Otherwise, we will drink it. Um, and yeah, thank you so much for coming out. And buy a book from Skylight because they're amazing. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.